0: like I, hold your head up high, till you find the blue bird of happiness, you will find greater peace of mind, knowing there's a blue bird of happiness, and Welcome to the Philip K. Dick Book Club, and we've come to, to the end of yet another novel. We're, we're actually you know, getting closer and closer to the end of this entire series. Um, Dick dies in a, 1982, and this is, Upik uh, was published in 1969, but um, after this, he only publishes 12 more novels in his, you no, know, 10 more no-, no, 11 more novels in his lifetime, and then of course there's the posthumous um, works. I'm not sure how I'm going to deal with the posthumous works. Yet, um, whether I'll do that as kind of an add-on series at some later date, or if I'll just kind of continue on from um, when we finish the Vala stuff with the posthumously published stuff, but um, we're kind of getting to the end of this this series. We're we're well over the halfway point, so that's that's kind of exciting. Um, and it, it's always fun to finish up with 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 one of these novels because Dick's novels usually have a an interesting ending now this ending is not satisfying though the ending of this novel ubic leaves us in a a very uncomfortable place and i I think this might be the first of his novels that really boldly leaves us in this uncomfortable place he'll do it again with the maze of death Um, but in you know although he's known for that a lot of his novels don't have that feel they they have endings that, uh, that do seem to resolve plot lines um at least with some of our characters they leave us in a satisfying place even when they they kind of leave questions unanswered like a lot of his mid-60s novels would leave the political situation kind of up in the air. But in other ways, it, it does leave us in a satisfying place. This one doesn't. This one really does force us to to just you know, accept the ambiguity. So uh, um, let's just jump into the last uh, few chapters of this novel, starting with chapter 12. We'll go through the, the final chapter, chapter 17. Um, where we left off, uh, the inertials have gotten back together. They start to realize that they, they probably are in half-life and that they're dealing with competing forces, forces of decay and forces of, of restoration. And the main force that seems to be restorative is this mysterious substance called called ubic. Runciter, Glenn their employer from the real world, seems to be contacting them, trying to get them to seek out Ubik in this in this kind of half-life world that they're they're dwelling in. But a lot of questions are still unanswered. Who, what was the bomb about? Who was behind that? Um, what's the role of Pat Conley in all this? Who has this strange power? And that's not fully answered. Is she on their side? Um, you know, the you know how. What is causing this reversion in this decay? Is it a natural state of half-life or is it something else? These are all variously, various unanswered questions. Um, but what they do decide to do at the end of chapter 11 and beginning of chapter 12 is basically to work together, to try to keep eyes on each other, to to work, to, to stay near each other. The best, without Ubik, the best hope they have is to stick together. They, they've seen that people, when they go off by themselves, tend to to fall into this rapid decay this rapid aging and, and decrepitude. And I talked in the last episode how I really think a lot of what's going on here is a is is it's it's a it's kind of a novel about aging and just the experience of aging, how everything seems to decay more quickly, how time seems to move more rapidly when we we get older. We we start to live more in the past and we, we're more attracted to nostalgia. But we also just feel tired and exhausted more often and we feel that burden of time more and more as we get older. And that's what halftime essentially is. It's its its waiting to die. It's kind of a purgatory before some kind of a mystical rebirth, almost a Buddhist-style rebirth at some future time. Um, now, Pat Conley, who's been kind of quiet in the novel for a while, she's, of course, this anti-precog inertial who actually has a talent. She's not really anti-talent, but her talent seems to be to manipulate timelines. And the question that's been kind of overhanging much of this novel is why didn't she stop the bomb, then we exploded back on the moon? Why doesn't she you know, do more? And the whole fact that her ability to shift through time seems to have a lot in common with what's happening to them, this reversion to the past and decay. But she claims to be trying to repair things. She's actually been trying to do things, but her, work, her, her abilities aren't working, right? And this, this, of course, would make sense if they are in Half-Life. If, if they're in Half-Life, these abilities wouldn't, wouldn't work. So they're, they're driving around, and they, they, they're driving around these old like Model T cars from the 20s, because it's set in 1939, and they get pulled over by a cop for, for not using a hand signal, which, of course, they wouldn't know how to do. I don't know when cars got the signal lights exactly, the exact date that that happened, but, of course, in the old days, you had to use these hand signals. They get pulled over by a police officer for doing that, and they get a citation. And, or Joe Chip gets a citation. But the citation is actually yet another note from Runciter. It's another attempt to try to contact them. And what it is, it's a warning about Pat Conley. It says, You are in much greater danger than I thought. What Pat Conley said, and he stops reading at that point, but later on he reads the rest of it. Um, And and I'll just jump to that. He says, what Pat Conley says is absolutely untrue. She did not, repeat, not try to use her talent following the bomb blast. She did not try to restore Wendy Wright or Al Hammond or Eddie Dorn. She's lying to you, Joe, and that makes me rethink the whole situation. I'll let you know as soon as I come to a conclusion. Meanwhile, be very careful. By the way, Ubik's power is of universal healing value if directions for use are rigorously and conscientiously followed, end quote. So, once again, RunCenter tries to throw in an advertisement for Ubik um, you know, he's constantly reminding these people you need to find Ubik if you want to save it's not something that Runster can really give them it's something that they need to seek out in this world on their own it's, a, it's really a creation of this, this world almost there's also another note on the receipt and this is uh, basically directions to a drugstore and it says try drug, Archer's Drugstore for reliable household remedies and medicinal preparations of tried and tested value economically priced so Joe Chip thinks, well, maybe we can get Ubik at this this drugstore. It seems Rensselaer wants us to go there. So he asks for directions to a drugstore, and he does get the directions to this drugstore. I think the guy says, like, that drugstore doesn't exist anymore, but it used to. And Joe Chip says, well, where was it? And he points that direction. They go there, and they actually see this drugstore kind of shifting in and out of time. It's like this this time instability is becoming uh, more conspicuous. And this is explained like in a future chapter about who's actually controlling this world. When we learn who's actually controlling this world, we realize why this person who's controlling it is, is not able to maintain a consistent feel for everything. But this is a really wild moment. It's on page 163 of the Vintage Version. It's all in Chapter 12. And uh, you know, he, it's described as pulsing in, as it shifts out of time. Quote, he watched it change between its two states, and then, as he got closer and closer to it, he discerned the nature of its alternative conditions. At the amplitude of greater stability, it became a retail home art outlet of his own time period, homeostatic in operation, a self-service enterprise selling 10,000 commodities for the modern connoisseur. He had patronized such highly functional, computer-controlled pseudo merchants throughout his adult life. And at the amplitude of insubstantiality, it resolved itself into a tiny, anachronistic drugstore with rococo ornamentation. In its meager window displays, he saw hernia belts, rows of corrected eyeglasses, mortar and pestle jars of his tablets, and a hand-printed sign reading leeches. So it's really, it's, it's not even like a 1939 drugstore. It's even more archaic than that. It's like almost a pre-39 style Charles drugstore. And so he has to go in, and he's not certain which kind of world he'll enter when he goes into the drugstore. But he, he does go in, and he's in the drugstore. And he asks for Ubik. And the guy has it. It's fairly expensive, forty dollars, and it's in a powder form. It's not in the spray can form that Runciter wants them to to use. But it's it's a powder and it's forty dollars. but Joe Chip has no way of paying for it. Uh, he he doesn't have any money that's accepted. He doesn't have any credit because he's from outside of Des Moines. He can't get local credit. And he doesn't. And he tries a credit card, but his credit card, of course, is not understood by the druggist from from another time period. So while he's in the drugstore, frustrated that he can't pay, he reads the rest of the note from, from Runciter warning him about Pat Conley. So he, he leaves the drugstore and then confronts the group, telling them that Pat Conley you know, has been not really... She's been lying. She hasn't been trying to, to, to fix things for them. And she, and they confront Pat. And while this happens, the whole lobby of the hotel that they're in explodes. Uh, right in Joe Chip's face. And this brings us into the final scenes of the novel, beginning on chapter in chapter 13. So chapter 13 is this really long slog of Joe Chip to try to get to his, his hotel room in the lobby. And he's struggling to go up the steps. He can't go up the elevator. And he's just faced this explosion. He survived it. But, you know, he's weakened. He starts to actually experience this deep decay and, and this feeling of entropy. And meanwhile, Pat's just kind of lording over him and kind of mocking him and teasing him and talking about how he's having a cardiac arrest and how she's not really gonna help him. It's it's really kind of a brutal scene where we see Pat Conley really treating him quite harshly. And she eventually blames him for sleeping with Wendy Wright earlier in the novel. This was the first character to, to sort of decay in front of them. And actually, Joe Chip has no memory of sleeping with her. It's just her body was found in, in his room in that in that weird state, and she assumed he slept with him. And throughout this conversation, as he's trying to get up to his room, there's this this mockingness. This, this Pat's constantly almost humiliating Joe in his state of weakness. It's I don't know. It again, I, I can't help but think that that Dick's projecting his own experiences with women. Um on it um of course some of the fears of 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 men as they get older is like performance anxiety um, erectile dysfunction and these kinds of things and and of course making that worse would be a woman who's mocking a man for that and humiliating him during that process and you know i don't know if that's on dick's mind here but there's some kind of weird psychological game being played here between pat and and uh joe chip so he's trying to get to the elevator right Says, just get me to the elevator. He compelled his body to move forward, one step, two. Now he could make out the elevator with several persons way down it. The old-fashioned dial with the sliding doors with the clock hand. The hand, the broke needles, wavering between three and four. It retired to the left, reaching the three, then wavered between three and two. I'll be here in a second, Pat said. She got her cigarettes and lighter from her purse lit up, exhaled trains of gray smoke from her nostrils. It's a very ancient kind of elevator, she said to him, her arms folded stately. You know what they think, I think. It's one of those old open ca- iron cages. Do they scare you? The iron had passed two now. It hovered above one, then plunged down firmly. The door slid open. Joe saw the grill of the cage, the lattice work. He saw the, un- the uniformed attendant seated on a stool, his hands on a rotating control. Going up, the attendant said, "Move to the back, please." I'm not going to get in it, Joe said. Why not? Pat said, "Do you think the cable will break? Is that what frightens you?" I can see you're frightened. And it's this. She's not helping him. It's but it's this kind of. Uh, banter that covers this whole whole scene, and so he eventually tries to go up the stairs. So he's crawling, dragging himself up the stairs while Pat continues to mock him. And Joe eventually does con- confront her by saying that Pat had a role in in the conspiracy that she was somehow behind the uh, working with Ray Holdis or working with Stanton Mick to to be there to initiate the bomb blast in the first place. And I'm not going to go through the whole scene. Blow by blow, but he eventually gets up to his room. And meanwhile, the other the other inertia with them is is Don Denny. He's uh, it's basically just these to be left, it seems. And he gets up there and he gets into his room. And at that moment, like Pat disappears, she just sort of vanishes, like she's never been there. It seems that Pat Conley at this point in the story is, is merely some kind of projection of, of of some other force. Um, but he gets in the room, and while he's in this room, he continues to experience this decay. Um, you know, He struggles to actually get into the room and use the key, but he gets inside, and his hands start to yellow and decay. He describes it like cooked dry turkey, um, bristly skin, not like human skin, pin feathers. I've evolved back millions of years to something that flies and coasts, using its skin as a sail. That's how he describes his skin. Um, he goes to the bed and kind of falls on it, and then he sees Glenn Runciter. He sees Glenn Runciter, the man who's been trying to contact him since the midpoint of the novel, trying to reach them in Half-Life. He runs to do it. And then Runciter says, I couldn't help you on the stairs because you would have seen me, but we're alone now and I can help you. And he breaks out this can of Ubik and he sprays it on Joe, reviving him. Now this, the way Ubik is described, it's a famous description and you see it like, it's even on the cover of the of the original novel, I think. That the spray can... Which we've been seeking for a long time now, since Runciter first told him about it. It's got bright stripes, balloons, and lettering glorifying the shining surfaces surfaces. That's the the, the gaudy 1960 styles aerosol can. He sprays Joe and, and Joe begins to revive from that moment. Ubik works in its, you know, in in causing this revival. That's the end of chapter 13. So chapter fourteen, Rumsitter somehow communicating with him through via Half-Life, starts to explain uh, Ubik, what it does, he starts to explain the role of Pat. He reconfirms that that he's the one that's alive and the inertials are the ones who are dead and existing in Cold Pack in the you know, in the at the moratorium. They're basically experiencing half-life. Runcider's current theory, though, is like within Half-Life, the force pushing them to the past seems to be connected to, to Pat. And she, he thinks that Pat is one of the major forces that they're, they're up against. He never really trusted her from the early page of the novel, and, and he hasn't uh, learned to trust her from this point of the story on. He even blames himself for this. He says, we let Pat Conley come with us, a woman we did not know, a talent we didn't understand, which potentially even Holis didn't understand, an ability anyhow connected with time reversion. Not strictly speaking, the ability to travel through time, for instance, she can't go into the future. In a certain sense, she can't go into the past either. What she does, as near as I can comprehend it, is start a counter process that uncovers the prior stages inherent in configurations of matter. But you know that. You and Al Al figured that out. And then he starts to lament the loss of, of Al Hammond. Um, Joe then has a question like, why do this? If the goal of the Holist Corporation was just to kill the inertials, why not just kill them? And Why mess around with Half-Life? Why why kill Pat Conley so she can play these games in Half-Life? And Joe thinks that there's actually a greater malevolent force at work here, something beyond just the politics of, of the... Prudence Corporation and its and its enemies. There's actually a deeper malevolence at work here, something beyond Ray Hollis. Runciter thinks it's Pat. Runciter just says, "Well, it's Pat. Pat's a, sa- a sadistic person. She's uh, childish. She's petulant. She's emotional, and she's jealous. And this is this explains this malevolence. Uh, and leave it to Philip Dick to find the, this most evil malevolence coming from a young spurned uh, woman." Now, during this conversation with Runciter, there's one big revelation, and that is that one of the inertials that Joe experienced in Half-Life, if they're in Half-Life, one of the inertials that he experienced and he talked to, not very much, but he's kind of a background character, Sammy Mundo, and Runciter explains that he's one who actually survived. He didn't die in the explosion. He's been in a coma, which means he's not in Half-Life, which means he's just you know, in a hospital bed in a coma. So how could he have appeared in in Half-Life? So this is uh, something, a realization for Joe Chip, that there is some someone posing as these inertials. And so he can't really trust anything he's seen. He can't trust any of these figures he's, he's run into. Because they all could be fakes. If Sammy Mundo was a fake, any of them could have been faked. So that's the end of the scene, and Runciter goes away and... Uh, finishes its conversation in Half-Life. And for, for a brief moment, just a few pages, we actually see Runciter in real time in the moratorium is trying to communicate with the various his and various employees who are in Half-Life. And he experiences this great frustration. He realizes that the whole corporation, whoever was involved in this plot, have, has literally decimated his, his operation. He's going to have to rebuild it. He's lost some of his best men, like Joe Chip, some of his best inertials like Al Hammond. But it's an important little scene because he thinks about going to talk once more with, with Ella Runsitter, his wife. And the last time we were introduced to talk about Al- Ella Runsitter was way back in, like, Chapter 2. She was mentioned a few times, but we never really saw her again. And what happened in Chapter 2, if you remember, way back then, was while Runsitter was talking with, with Ella, her mind was taken over by this more dominant personality named Jory. Right? And Runsitter fears that if, she talks to Ella, if he talks to Ella again, he'll run into this story once again and not truly, truly Ella. And this leads us right then into our, the climax of the novel in chapter 15. So in chapter 15, Joe Chip bumps into Don Denny. And Don Denny, when Joe, after the explosion in the lobby and after his long slog up to the, his apartment, he had gone to get a doctor to help uh, Joe Chip. And he comes with the doctor, but now he's better, right? Upik has revived him, has saved him, so he's better. So just, um, nevertheless, he does f- share with Don his despair that eventually this Upik will run out. Eventually they, they will die. There's no stopping it. It's, it's an inevitability of half-life that they'll eventually um, die out. In fact, the spray can of Upik is already close to empty. And there's a scene where he's trying to spray it on Don. You know to and it is it's like already done it's already decaying it's like when an aerosol spray can gets to an end and it just kind of spurts out that's all that's left of the ubic so he sprays this on don and then he does this don changes into a young boy and here's the description an adolescent boy mawkishly slender with irregular black button eyes beneath tangled brows he wore an anachronistic costume white drip dried shirt jeans and laceless leather slippers Close from the middle of the century, on his elongated face, Joe saw a smile, but it was a misshapen smile, a thwarted crease that becomes almost a jeering leer. No two features matched. His eyes had too many convolutions in them to fit with his chitinous eyes. His straight hair contradicted the interwoven curly bristles of his brows. And his nose, Joe thought, too thin, too sharp, far too long. Even his chin failed to harmonize with the balance of his face. It had a deep chisel mark on it, a cleft obviously penetrating far up into the bone. Joe thought, as if that at that point the manufacturer of this creature struck a bow aimed at obliterating him, but the physical material the base substance had been too dense the boy had not fractured and split apart he existed in defiance of even the, even the forces that had constructed him he jeered at everything else and it too and then the boy of course reveals himself to be Jory he's got other names too, but he's Jory and then Jory goes into his kind of supervillain explanation of, of what's going on, so there's a bit of exposition here it's, you know it's, it's unavoidable, I guess, that, that we have that. But, you know, basically he admits that he's been eating people in Half-Life and that's how he sustains himself. And, you know, he's been, with all these inertials brought into Half-Life after the bomb, he's just, you know, he's just been consuming them. And that's that's kind of what he does with him his his life in Half-Life. He's the dominant personality in the Moratorium. And so he feeds on the different people in, in this world. He's so powerful, he can even control the world. And that is why he's been shifting it to 1939 and, and and basically controlling the world that they're in. He doesn't cause all the regression, though. The regression he explains as a product of of half-life itself. It's something people experience in half-life. It's a natural process. But he works with that regression to create a world that makes sense. Um, so Jory essentially says that, you're next, I ate everyone else. I think he admits he ate pretty much everyone. all the other... Uh, inertials who are there. Um, he ate, for instance, Don Denny early on in the story. We, we didn't know that, though. He's been posing as Don Denny for a long time, the same way he poses as Sammy Mundo and uh, and others. Probably Pat Conley in that final scene, too. So they fight a little bit. Joe chips able to spray some Ubik to on his wound to protect himself from Jory, so they're at a bit of a standoff. Jory can't seem to consume him while he has Ubik on him, but the Ubik is wearing out. And his idea then at this point is just to flee, to force Jory to create as many worlds as possible, to ma- maintain this facade and maybe force him to kind of a, an end point. I'm almost reminded of the scene in Eye in the Sky when you, you had characters who control the world they lived in and then the other characters had to kind of push that world to its limit to, of, of rationality and logic in order to drain them and to, to f- lead them to another world. Um, uh, or, or to even break free of it. It's, it's kind of very reminiscent of that scene. I think it's especially, which woman was it? It was that puritanical mother in Eye in the Sky who wanted to abolish everything that was ugly or distasteful. And the characters then had to kind of push that to its logical conclusion to, to break free of that world. That's sort of what Joe is going to try here. So in Chapter 16, he gets down back to the first floor. He gets into a taxi, and he basically says, drive me around Des Moines, take me to as many places as you can, and better yet, take me to the next town. And he says, I'm not going to take you to the next town, I'm just a taxi. So still he, he drives around, and then he thinks maybe sex will be something that can push Jory over the limit. If it's something that a 15-year-old wouldn't know that much about, maybe he wouldn't be able to even construct it, and that may, may be his advantage over Jory. So he seeks out just kind of picking up a random woman. Uh, that trying to take out her on a date and then hopefully sleep with her. So he finally picks up a woman and they have a conversation and she's a bit worried about him because his wound starts to to bleed a little bit. It seems that Ubik is wearing out. And she's like, maybe you need to go to the doctor. And he's like, no, no, let's go to dinner. And she agrees to go to dinner with him. But then she reveals that she's, her, she's actually Ella Runciter. She's not just a random woman he's picking up. She's Ella Runciter. And... You know, when we first meet Ella Runciter, she's so outminded and airy, and it's almost like a burden for Glenn Runciter to talk to her. She's 20 years old, she's, she's kind of coming out of a dream when we first talk to her. We're told that her mind is weak and gets taken over by Jory. So we don't see her as a serious character, we see her as a weak figure. But actually she's presented here as being a, quite a strong force of the resistance against Jory within this community of, of half-lifers like all the people in this Zurich moratorium, are coming to terms with him facing Jory, facing his power and facing his, the dominance of his personality. So she starts to go into her own um, uh, exposition here. She explains that she wants to actually move on from Half-Life, f- follow the red light, which will allow her to be reborn in another womb. So it seems people from Half-Life uh, prepare. And that's what Half-Life almost is. It's, it's this waiting room before the process of reincarnation. Uh, that's why the Tibetan Book of the Dead is so important for understanding Half-Life. Uh, but it's, it's kind of clearly revealed here that the, the process of Half-Life leads one to rebirth and she's ready to be reborn after living in Half-Life for a while. But she wants to help her husband, Glenn to run his company. So she wants to make sure there's someone in Half-Life who can take over her role and she wants Joe to be the one to do that. Um, she also explains that Ubik is something that they created that the half-lifers created in this area to fight against the types of Jory. every moratorium though, will have a Jory or someone who has a dominant personality or more powerful than the others and then the others have to resist against that so we end up we don't even know this until this point in the story that this is a, a novel of resistance to to capricious sadistic power right that power is of course framed in the in a in a 15 year old child and you know, Dick does have his issues with children, to be sure. I, I think there are novels where he's on the child's side, but the fact that he does sometimes see children as malevolent is is hard to be denied. This is a novel like that. But this is a novel about resistance to power and, and how collectively we can do that, even if we have to resort to the tropes and the cliches of, of consumer society to do that. Right. So... You know, Ubik was a bottom-up creation. Now, later on, we can play with the idea that maybe Ubik is, is God. Um, maybe in this world, it's the closest we have to something like God, you know, the thing that can revive us, that can restore us from, from our decay. But uh, it's also something that was constructed by the people collectively yeah, as a form of resistance to this jewelry um, So Ella uh, Runciter gives Joe Chip a lifetime supply of Ubik. So he says goodbye to Ella Brunster, and then he goes into a drugstore. And in the drugstore, he, he, he asks to, you know, to cash in his lifetime supply of Ubik. And he finds himself face-to-face once again with Jory. And Jory says, like, you know, I can give you Ubik, but it's going to be the reverted kind you can't use. It's not going to be the spray can. And Joe and Jory get into like, a psychic duel where Joe tries to convert the reverted elixir of ubik kind of stuff, the stuff he can't consume, tries to convert it into the spray can. And he fails in doing that, and he leaves He leaves exhausted. But, uh, you know, the resistance finds a way to get him Yubik nonetheless. A girl tracks him down and gives him a can. So there are ways of distributing ubik besides drugstores. And um, I don't know why you know, they didn't give it to him earlier in the story, but... Uh, Maybe he had to realize all these things first before he could uh, embrace it. So chapter 16 ends with him with his access to his lifetime supply of Ubik. He has the ability to confront Jory. He has the ability to exist in half-life, providing guidance for Glenn Runciter. Ella Runciter is ready to die and and follow the red light and pass on to be reborn. And that's pretty much it. Um, Unfortunately, uh, or fortunately, depending if you like it or not, we get chapter 17 which is only two pages. Um, It it starts out, we get uh, the same epigraph. This time, it's still an ad, I suppose, but it's, it's framed differently. This is what is written. I am Ubik. Before the universe was, I am. I made the stars. I made the worlds. I created the lives and the places they inhabit. I move with them. I put them down here. They go as I say. They do as I tell them. I am the word and my name is never spoken, the name which no one knows. I am called Ubik, but that is not my name. I am, I shall always be. That's the epigraph. Now this is obviously God, right? Now I don't think this means that Ubik is literally God. It's explained that it is something constructed by the people in half-life as a resistance to Jory. I think this is Dick's point that you know, God in our world is essentially an extension of, of consumers. And we have these 16 ads. The 17th is Ubik as God. God presents himself to us as a consumer good, right? And of course we we do live especially in the United States where religion is a marketable commodity, right? You churches compete, you know, kind of for popular demand, right? People don't have to go to church. There's not state churches anymore. You know, you're not forced to. So if churches want your attention, they have to attract you and and they do advertise for sometimes. And of course we have television evangelists. We have God is delivered in a way as something we purchase or we consume, right? And it might be on TV even, like through these, the, me, the technologies of mass media. And I think was Dick was was well aware that the world was moving in that direction. God was becoming something accessible to us only through uh, the real religion of, of 1960s America, that of, that of consumerism. Nevertheless, Dick does throw a little twist in the final chapter. Again, it, it's actually only one page. Because it kind of is half of one page and half of another, in my version, and basically Rumstead is preparing for his his new life, rebuild the company. Uh, Ella is he's preparing for Ella to, to move on, you know, to be reborn, work with Joe Chip. But he looks at a coin, a fifty cent piece, and it has a Joe Chip's face on it. So uh, the final words of the novel are, he had an intuition, chilling, that if he searched his pockets and his bill for it, he would find more. This was just the beginning. And that's how the novel ends. And of course, that's how the novel, when it got weird, began, right? Was with people realizing their money had Glenn Runciter currency on it. So what can you do with this? There's not much you can do. I'm not a fan of this kind of ending simply because to be ambiguous for the sake of being ambiguous, um, I guess we're supposed to come to the conclusion that this means that is the one actually in Half-Life and Joe Chip's not. But that runs contrary to everything that came before it. And it makes the whole novel kind of pointless. It, you know, it, It's kind of fun, I guess, to, to play with these levels of reality. But uh, it doesn't really get us anywhere, I guess. And, um, but some people like this kind of aspect of Philip Dick's work. And I, I acknowledge that. Um, that's, I, I, I don't really have, though, any real complaints about it. I, I, I find the novel interesting enough, funny enough exciting enough after reading do Andrew's Dream of Electric Sheep this is the levity of Ubik is a lot of fun it's um, the character of Joe chip is really intriguing uh, it's I feel very much that Dick is projecting some of his own anxieties whether it's a fear of aging uh, some sexual anxieties with uh, some of the relationships Joe chips have or even financial insecurity that he has to, that despite producing so many great novels despite being fairly famous by this point he still struggled to make ends meet couldn't pay the, you know, how Joe Chip can't pay the homeostatic door, even the five cents. Um, I like that Dick returns to the posthuman themes that he sort of moved away from by the late 50s. This is um, probably his greatest later novel dealing with post-humanism, with the exception of Our Friends from Full Lux, um 6, is it, or 8? I keep forgetting. I think it's 8. Our Friends from Full Lux, 8, which is his, his ultimate uh, later posthuman novel, but this this one deals a lot of interesting things with post humanism and how they would be used in a in a game of corporate competition and uh, struggle I like also that we have a novel about shifting realities that that is also a novel about power and struggle and I, I think this is a major theme of dick's later works whatever complaints I have about like the Valis trilogy or some of the stuff he writes in the 70s we are you know dick is pre- talking about resistance and and how to really fight against shifting realities, right? And he's been doing this really, I think, seriously since the three stigmata of Palmer Eldridge. If you remember what those three stigmata were, they're they're alienation, uh, false reality, and, and despair. I had to look up the last one, but those are the three stigmatas. And that's what his characters in all of his novels are struggling against. Right and need to fight against. In this case, it's the struggle against alienation and, and blurred realities, right? The struggle to control our own destiny and our own fate and not be subject to the whims of, of just the boss man or the state or or the authority. And, and his next novel, Galactic Podhealer, is, is exactly about that, at least the next novel I'm going to look at. I'm not sure which one was written first, but Galactic Pot Healer is directly a novel about about controlling one's life and its most fundamental area that of that of work actually ubex not a not a book about work but both are works about resistance in the sense of finding meaning in one's life and even if we're dead even if we're in half-life that meager existence that we might have is still something worth we're struggling to to control so i really very much like that theme so there's a lot, I think, to like about, about Ubik. And, I, and I'm, I prefer not to get too distracted by that final chapter where he throws in God and throws in, uh, you know, another layer. It's kind of like a, it's inception in that way, right? We, we just throw in some ambiguity in the end just to do it. Um, even when it doesn't really add anything thematically to the story. So what are the themes of, of Ubik to finish up here? Well, uh, obviously consumerism, I, I think... The consumption of life, our life force being limited and something that we, we go through, we use up. Uh, entropy as a major, our major enemy in, in, uh, of existence, like the major enemy to our life force and to our, our kind of struggle to, to live life as, uh, you know, to be alive is, is entropy. This, this tendency of, of things to decay both ourselves and on the goods around us. This is, of course, the real weakness of consumer culture is that it does decay. It doesn't have that permanence that other things have. Nevertheless, consumerism is powerful. UBIC can only be presented to us via advertisements, via consumer products. Um, so it's a really big theme. This is the novel of consumerism to go to if you want to understand Dick's views on it. It's a. It's not as clear as maybe the, the, the early stories like Foster Your Dead or Nanny or... Uh, sales pitch but it's it's a much more mature look at at the experience of consumerism as kind of banal and futile and and endless right the focus on money here the focus on different forms of money the the center centrality of ads all this is speaking to a novel about consumerism in one way or another another theme is post-humanism that's certainly the first half is dominated by Post human versus the anti psi, the psi versus the anti psi, post humans, and the way humanity balances itself after the evolution of psi powers. Anti psi powers were evolved to counteract them. So, um, I don't know much more to say about it. This is these are ideas Dick had in the 50s, so they're not new, but they're they're used here to, I think, good effect. And I, I still believe that had he just wrote a novel about. The Runster Corporation confronting the Holus Corporation. It would have been a good novel. I think people would, would like it, would have liked it. Uh, maybe he was thinking of writing that novel and he changed his mind. Who knows? That's a good one. Um, corporate power. I think the, the power of co- corporations like Runciter's and, and Holus, Mick, is, is kind of contrasted in a weird way with Jory. Um, Jory is kind of this malevolent, you know, almost imperialist force within Half-Life the most powerful entity and then the other half-lifers need to fight against being consumed They need to fight against being uh... being consumer goods in their own right i mean that's an aspect of consumerism i guess i didn't articulate but it's there as well jory's the the ultimate consumer he's his whole goal is just to consume people in half-life to eat them for their energy to eat their their minds i guess so um... He kind of parallels, I think, the power of corporations. And then you got examples of more mundane, you know, corporate power. It's 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 very cyberpunky in the, you know where you got a world dominated by a handful of of companies. Uh, sexual jealousy is big here, especially the relationship between Wendy Wright, Joe Chip, and and Pat Conley. Uh, not really a marriage novel. We have the marriage between, I guess. Uh, Ellen and Glenn Runster, which I'll get to, but uh, there are a lot of sexual jealousy in this story, and it's, um, it, it muddles the water throughout the novel, to be sure. We, we misunderstand Pat Conley's role. Um, it seems she's dead for much of the novel, and we don't even know that. But when she emerges, she emerges. She's not trusted because she is young. She's uh, emotional and, and, and all that. Uh, we, of course, have the, half, the afterlife here. This novel does come on the heels of *Counterclock World, which is also a novel about the afterlife. Here, the afterlife is presented in a Buddhist sense, where people, when they, when they die in half-life, they're reborn in another body. Uh, history is reflected here. We, we, we're, we're pleased to see Dick return to his interest in World War II. And uh, the politics of World War II, and in and that era, Nazism, and, and I think this is a novel that at least briefly comes to terms, or tries to come to terms, with anti-Semitism in the U.S., racism in the 1930s, isolationism, and and all those uh, negative aspects of, of of America in the 30s. Although I don't sure, I'm not sure Dick really understands the timeline by which. Uh, Knowledge about the full extent of the Holocaust was made known to most Americans, but uh, it's dealt with here anyways. I I don't think it matters that whether it was in 39 or 44, but anti-Semitism was real in America at the time. And this helped prevent, this certainly did help prevent Americans from from fully facing the reality of what was going on in Germany and, and doing something about it. Uh, we got the malevolent child, which is more, I guess, a motif of Dick's than an the actual theme. It's just something that comes up a lot. Jory is that malevolent child. Um, I do think he's kind of conflicted on, on childhood, sometimes presenting them as victims, like in the Kraken space, sometimes presenting them as uh, weird, evil forces. Um, the one marriage we have here, it's, it's, you can't talk about a Philip Dick novel without talking about marriage to some degree. Uh, the marriage here is Glenn and Ellen, it's a good example of an undead marriage, a marriage that, that carries on even after the marriage is broken. In this case, it's broken by death, but thanks to Half-Life, the marriage can continue on. Uh, other marriages are undead in his works because of divorce. A couple will be divorced, but they still rely on each other or they still are emotionally connected to each other or whatever. We're gonna see that in Galactic Pod Healer. We saw it in uh, clowns of the Elfane Moon um, in other novels. So the, the undead marriage, I'll, I'll call it. This one, literally undead, in the sense Ellen Runciter is dead. Um, debt is another theme. Consumer debt, I guess it ties back to consumerism, the, 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 the idea of debt. Of course, in a novel about consumerism, you have to deal to some degree with the theme of debt. And here it's Joe Chip, who's constantly in debt. And it's, it's kind of used for laughs, but I think there's a serious... Part of this and that a consumer economy does seem to be associated with high levels of debt and then what effect does this have on, on of course, human freedom. So those, I think, are the major themes of, of Ubik. Um, religion, I guess, tied in with the afterlife. I don't want to touch too much the, the God aspect of, of, of Ubik. Uh, do, that, do with that what you want. I mean, certainly it's, it's there for you to grab, but it's not primarily why I would come back to this novel. So, a good one to read, it's a quick read, uh, the audiobook is about seven hours. Um, thankfully, at least for now, all the f- pretty much all the Philip Dick books are, audiobooks are available on, on YouTube, so uh, take advantage of that. So coming up next will be Galactic Pot Healer, my favorite Philip Dick novel, um, it's, it's uh, one of his most powerful ones, and I like it because it deals with work. It's uh, it's in a way his final statement on work and one, his most powerful statement on work and the meaning of life even. Um, goes beyond just, you know, empathy. If you read Do Androids People Like Your Sheep, you think the meaning of life is, and the meaning of being human is to be to have empathy, but it's more than that. It, it's to also have meaning in, in the physical sense, in the, in the sense that we are creative and producers. And no book t- says that better than, I think, Galactic Pot Healer, and that makes it probably the most relevant book for our time when we look at concerns about automation and maybe a post-work world. There's no book that's more critical to read if you're concerned about... There's no Philip Dick book, anyways, to that's more important to read if you're concerned about the issues of of automation and and how one can find meaning in a world where there is no work. So I look very much forward to beginning my talk of, of, of my favorite Philip Dick novel. And that will bring us to the end of... Of our adventure through the 1960s. Um, we'll, we'll have a lot more to say, but it, it is kind of a turning point in Dick's career when we jump into the 70s. His output slows down. His his works, he gets more fame, I think, but his output does slow down and, um, you know, he starts to move to a really different phase by the mid-70s for, for various reasons. So... Um, that's going to be it for now. Thanks, as always, for listening. Leave your own comments about Ubik below, what were your experiences with this novel. You can send me an email at 100 at gmail.com if you have those thoughts. Um, but I'll see you next time, when we'll begin our look at Galactic Pot Forget, You must search till you find the bluebird. and contentment forever if you're